Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey, everyone. The merge is upon us. After this show is published, Ethereum's merge, which will transition the blockchain to proof of stake, will likely happen within about two days. Earlier this summer, Kevin Zhou of Galois Capital raised the ire of many people in Ethereum when he talked about the likelihood that an Ethereum proof-of-work chain would come out of the fork. And in recent weeks, it does look like there's a movement behind this so-called Ethereum proof-of-work or ETHPOW fork. Though how successful or how smooth it will be is anyone's guess. In this episode, Kevin and Evgeny Guyvoy of Wintermute, a large market maker in crypto, discussed different ways the merge could play out. Honestly, they said so many things that surprised me, and we got to cover everything from the potential ETH POW chain, to Bitcoin, to ETH itself, to DeFi. We talked about NFTs and more. Litecoin, Dogecoin, and SHIB even got a mention. I hope you find this episode as thought-provoking as I did, and also that you have a happy merge week. When I catch you Friday, we should be in an Ethereum proof-of-stake world. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the September 13th, 2022 episode of Unchained. Every other week, Unchained hosts The Chopping Block, where crypto insiders Hasib Qureshi, Tom Schmidt, Robert Leshner, and Tarun Chitra chop up news in digital assets. Catch the latest episode now on YouTube. Harness the full power of the Avalanche Network with Core, your new Web3 command center. Built by Ava Labs, Core is more than just a wallet. It's a non-custodial browser extension engineered for users to seamlessly and securely experience Web3 like never before. Explore Avalanche dApps, NFTs, bridges, subnets, and more today. Whether you're crypto curious or a C-suite decision maker, you have to check out Web3 with A16Z the chart-topping technology podcast about the future of the next internet. Listen to Web3 with A16Z on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA, link in the description. Today's topic is trading the merge. Here to discuss are Kevin So, co-founder of Galwa Capital, and Evgeny Guyvoy, founder and CEO of Wintermute. Welcome, Kevin and Evgeny. Um, yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, really nice to be here. So as we just mentioned, Ethereum's long-awaited merge will arrive very soon, most likely a day or two after this podcast comes out. Probably the only other Ethereum hard fork that was as closely watched as this one was the DAO hard fork back in 2016. Kevin, your views on the merge are somewhat known, but let's have you give a short recap of what you think will happen at a high level for people who either missed your earlier interview with me or haven't seen your tweets. What do you think will happen at the time of the merge? 
Yeah, happy to, you know, talk about that a little bit. So, you know, I think just overall, really sort of the contention that I have right now is that it could be a lot messier than I think a lot of people expect. And, you know, I just kind of wanted to uh, surface that with the community. And I think for the most part, a lot of these kinds of scenarios have already kind of been playing out in the market, you know, when when the futures curve backwardated uh, a lot less now than before. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of risks that are surrounding possible technical failures on the merge, other kinds of, you know, weird griefing attacks by, you know, maybe certain actors within the space, whether that be like maybe some kind of third fork or exchanges behaving badly. Now, I think for any single one of these things, the probability I think is very low. Uh, but I think when you add all of it together, at least at the time, it seemed like that there was, you know, that I think that that wasn't really being priced in properly. And I think, I think since then, you know, the markets kind of played out, you know, ST ETH and ETH widened, um, that spread widened, you know, the futures went backwardated. Uh, and then since then, it's actually come in a bit the other direction. So, um, you know, it's interesting to see the market dynamics there. But I think, uh, I think overall, you know, not everybody, I think, is so sure now, I think that the merge is going to do what it's supposed to do. And I think at least having a little bit of that uncertainty in the air, I think is healthy uh, for the space. Evgeny, as a crypto market maker, how are you looking at the merge? What do you think will happen at that time? Yeah, so for us as a, as a market maker, it's a pretty interesting event, obviously. And it's even more interesting given how deep we are in DeFi in general, not just in Ethereum, but in all, all kinds of L2s and yeah, all, all, all kinds of scalability, scalability solutions, like whatever you call it. And so for us, it's like three three problems we have to solve. So first, we needed to make sure that we don't miss something and lose a lot of money, which is probably the main like <laughs> the main thing for any like trading shock in this space. And it, it has to do with I don't know replay attacks. It has to do with in general like where we store our ERC twenty assets and how we store them and like what can potentially happen. I know upgrading our gnosis safes, for example, like all, all those like small and big things. Second is basically any kinds of opportunities, and that's primarily I would say on proof of work chain part, like well the ones that supposedly will will like fork effectively, uh, however you, you call it, and uh, like the more in the most basic sense, it's basically once the merge happens or so once once the once the fork happens actually try to sell all the assets which we think will be worth zero, primarily stable coins into the Ethereum proof of work and basically try to get like a lot of free just free of this new Ethereum. And the third bit is it has to do with our DeFi operations. It's actually understanding how MEV space, like how block building space will change post-merge. And that's also well that's actually also a really interesting topic and that's that's what we are primarily looking at now, because like a lot of those issues that we initially identified over the last couple of months, they kind of subsided. Like some of them are still there, but like we don't we don't really see that, that many as many issues that can lose us money. Namely, like none, I would say. Um, opportunities wise, I don't really think it's gonna be amazing opportunity in general. Like I think a lot of it, just like Kevin said, a lot of it played out in the futures market uh, over the last couple of months already or in stake this. Um, so it's all about, yeah, like if you can be the fastest during the first couple of blocks when there's going to be like a lot of mess potentially. And also how do you manage your inventory on all kinds of centralized exchanges, which will 
close down or shut down all the deposits and withdrawals for quite some time, I can imagine. So, but that's kind of like normal, normal stuff for us. That's our bread and butter. Okay. So yeah, let's uh, dive more into this proof of work fork because I see so much chatter about this. Obviously, it's funny because I do think the longer term impact really will be around ETH. But at this moment in time, you know, this is what a lot of people seem focused on. Interestingly, or maybe not surprisingly, actually, I see a number of developers that are deriding this potential ETH proof of work chain. In particular, they're sort of making fun of the team for not having yet, uh, for instance, switched the chain ID or leaving it missing, or um, basically telling them that they're trying to change it the wrong way. Like the, like they're saying, they're implying that these developers don't even know how to change it. As Evgeny alluded to, some people are saying the chain probably won't even be ready until sometime after the merge. So it'll basically be a fork of the fork, which is fascinating, or I'm not sure exactly how this works. But obviously then, on the other hand, we have traders like yourselves, or other community members who are writing up whole newsletters and blog posts and tweet threads on how to trade this ETH proof of work fork. So, you know, again, I flash back to what happened to the DAO where it basically seems like the developers see things one way. They see, you know, back then they saw that Ethereum Classic Chain is not being useful. The traders were like, hey, that's free money. So I was just curious for your take, given all these technical issues that the ETH proof of work team seems to be having, do you expect that chain to emerge right at the time of the merge or afterward? And, you know, how how do you expect these, any technical difficulties to affect how it plays out? Yes, I, you know, for us, uh, you know, I think we've heard all sorts of different opinions about this, uh, whether it'll be on time or not. You know, we're trying to prepare for any situation. You know, certainly if the fork is on time, there's probably going to be a lot more training opportunities. And I think it's also because of, you know, these kinds of revelations about the chain ID, you know, or about, you know, whether or not it's going to be ready on time, which is why kind of the futures base is closed in. And uh, maybe this is also why a lot of people are right now dumping their ETH POW ahead of time. So I think, you know, generally, there's been a couple of things that I think the ETH POW community did that I think was not strategically uh, advantageous to them. So I think things like, for example, beyond just the repeal of 1559, this idea of creating a multi-sig to fund development, I think it's a bit double-edged. I, I personally think that it, it's not the best idea. It's sort of like, you know, you're introducing this kind of layer of centralization uh, on that chain, and there's like a small group that's in charge of some kind of dev treasury. I think it would have been better for them to play more along the lines of, you know, ideological purity, especially given the tornado cash revelations. But at the same time, I understand why they're doing that. And it's because, you know, they don't really have an Ethereum foundation uh, on their side to go back development and you know bring uh, bring new apps to 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 the chain that sort of thing. So I, I think it's you know it's a really tough situation for them. I don't I don't think it was a good idea uh, to introduce any whiff of corruption or that it being a money grab. I mean everybody already thinks that it's a money grab. So like to introduce more of that where you know people can point fingers and people can can accuse them of of doing that even more. Um, I think that you know, that that's not the PR that they need. But, you know, I think all those things, you know, taken into consideration, I think the market's already reflecting these kinds of new expectations. You know, I think Polo yesterday traded down to like 1.8% uh, from like roughly it was hovering around like three, three and a half percent. You're talking about the ETH proof of work IOUs on, okay. Yeah. 
so yeah, so I think that, you know, that's already come in quite a bit. So, you know, we'll see where, where the market places things, you know, certainly the, the, the size that's being traded on, you know, Bitfinex's chain split tokens and on Polo, you know, with their split tokens is very shallow. So there's not, there's not that much price discovery. And, you know, there, there could still be really large players, you know, obviously Ethereum Foundation, a lot of large whales that haven't dumped yet, but who do want to dump, but the size is just too big. So, you know, I think we, we really need to see all of that kind of play out and wash out, I think within the first week or two, maybe even quicker than that. And then afterwards, then we can come to some kind of equilibrium price, at least in the short term for ETHPOW. And then what happens in the long term really depends. I think the POS guys think that it bleeds out to zero. You know, that's pop, that's probably very likely. Also, there's also possibilities of it just randomly pumping for other reasons. You know, they do some kind of deal with some group or, you know, POS completely fails uh, for release reasons unrelated to POW. Um, so, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, it can go anywhere from there. And I think it's really, uh, we're just trying to figure out what should we do before the merge? What should we do during the merge and immediately right after in the next few blocks? And then what should we do maybe about a week or two out? And then from there, we don't really care too much, you know, because I think for these longer time frames, it's just not as interesting as sort of like the mechanics of trading these kinds of uh, special sits and one-off situations. Okay. One, one thing I want to clarify is just when you talked about repealing 1559, it's because that drastically reduced what the miners were earning. So by repealing it, then they would <laughs> sort of boost how much they're earning because that was uh, burning part of the, the fees. But then I wanted to ask you, so explain how this works for the ETHPOW tokens that are available on some of these exchanges. So for people that are trading these, does this mean that the exchange will just give them some, you know, whatever the same number of actual ETHPOW tokens are that are available after this new chain survives? Or how does that work? Uh, I imagine that's the case. You know, I don't have any special insight there. I imagine that there must be some exchange out there, maybe one of the smaller ones, that just completely messes it up. And continues to accept like deposits of ETHPOW as if it were um, ETHPOS. I mean, there, there's all sorts of like weird edge cases, and I wouldn't put it past somebody to mess up somewhere. But you know, the, if you know, according to plan, though, it would be that you know each token becomes two tokens. Exchanges would give it to their customers based on right before the snapshot what the ownership split looked like. Okay, so and Evgeny, are you? How are you thinking about like? Obviously, Kevin just mentioned that there's pot- potential for it to be uh, live later than the actual merge. Um, what are you sort of either betting on or how are you thinking about this uncertainty? Yeah, I, I guess like what they communicate so far is it will be almost exactly at the merge, which will make things quite fun <laughs> for, for a lot of people and quite difficult for a lot of people as well. Um, I think ultimately that's most likely that will happen actually because yeah, just looking at the way, like you, you did mention, like a few developers like having problems with them uh, on like esports side, and I've seen uh, like Coinbase has been not very happy with them as well. Uh, I think today about not pushing through the chain ID uh, or something, which obviously is a yeah, prerequisite for uh, replay attacks uh, being potentially possible. So like. They still, they have like less, well, they have like a week and they still need to yeah, deliver on a lot of things. So I think the right play for them would be actually to, to maybe delay it and get it done properly. I didn't argue, like to me, the whole, to, to me, the most uh, curious thing is why wouldn't they just launch 
a new chain altogether without inheriting all the Ethereum mass. Like, well, and by mass, I mean like all the smart contracts, all the, all, well, basically the whole Ethereum state. And that, that to me is the most, this, this thing I just don't understand. Like, why not just spin off another Ethereum classic, give it, give yourself some tokens and go with it just like so many chains that were launched over the last couple of years. All right. So out of curiosity, what would you both expect the value to be of these ETH POW tokens afterward? Is it going to be less than 2% of the current value of ETH as the IOUs are on these exchanges seem to be indicating? You know, I think in my opinion right now, uh, I'm going to go with the market. And I think that let's say after the first period of like pandemonium and dumping, uh, I think it maybe just equilibrates to about maybe 2%. Uh, that would be my guess. But um, for myself personally, I'm not that interested in buying at fair value, I think, uh, or at least short-term fair value. You know, I think I might be lightly bid at like one to one and a half percent and then much stronger bid, I think, between like half a percent and one percent. And that's not f- to forecast anything about, you know, the super long-term future. Uh, but that's kind of, you know, levels that I'd be interested in maybe taking a swing at it. Wait, and when you say that, you mean before the fork? Uh, I meant like after the fork. Um, so like after this initial period of like DeFi pandemonium, mostly on the POW side, but maybe a tiny bit on the POS side. And then once that period ends, and then everybody who wants to have dumped POW has dumped it, uh, then I think some kind of natural short-term, you know, equilibrium price, maybe around 2%. Seems pretty fair. You know, obviously it could just be wrong, could just be way higher than that, could be like way lower than that. Uh, I don't know. But you know, that's kind of what my expectations are, you know, just as comparables with like ETC and like, you know, things that had happened before other types of forks that have forked off of other tokens. There's not too much to go off of, but that would be sort of finger in the air kind of guesswork there. So this is fascinating to me because from the way you're talking and maybe I'm wrong, it sounds like you're not interested in buying those ETH POW tokens before the merge until after people begin to dump them once the once the chain goes live, is that what you're implying there? Uh, that's generally my thought, but I think if it dumped um, ahead of time to a low enough level, I would still be interested in buying it. Um, it's just that I don't want to get in front of other people's um, selling. You know, even if I wanted to buy it, I'd rather buy it at a cheaper price rather than a more expensive price. So, you know, I'm, I'm fine to wait for everybody else to go first on that. Oh, I wonder. I, you know, I'm not a trader, but given everything that you've said earlier, that I, that I find that surprising. I would have thought that you were looking to, you know, dump in the first few blocks. But while we're talking about that, for both of you, what do you think will happen in the first few blocks? Like, you know, I saw Dan Robinson of Paradigm appears to be figuring this out as well. He's asked on Twitter if the ETH POW fork happens, what will be the, what will the first few blocks be like? Give uh, give me your opinion uh, for both of you. Maybe we can ask Evgeny first, but I just want to clarify one thing, which is that what I was saying about these sort of price levels I'd be willing to buy, it's it's not related to stuff that we're going to be doing like on chain and you know maybe like doing some MEV to like race for certain blocks and to you know dump certain types of ETH POW ERC twenties for other. ETHPOW ERC20s or ETHPOW itself, you know, that's like a different set of strategies. I meant more for like in in the midterm where I saw fair value. That's sort of what I meant. All right. So first few blocks on the ETHPOW fork. What do you guys think? If if it happens like it happened so far and basically they don't freeze up all AMMs, for example, like they wanted to do, um, 
I think it's quite possible that a few people will rush and try to sell all the well valueless assets. Let's let's call it like this. I think it will take a few more blocks than just first couple of blocks because I think like those those first few blocks will be very like busy, and I think we will we'll see a lot of competition. This competition will be even more interesting because we will we wouldn't see normal players like flashbots, for example, helping out. We wouldn't see like well we wouldn't see a lot of this infra that will suddenly just stop working on proof of work. So people will have to go back to the old ways, figuring out like how to actually submit it, how to I don't know, pay miners properly to, to do the, all this stuff. And I don't think a lot of companies can actually figure it out properly. Like it's it's quite possible proof of work devs will not do something properly as well and that actually will be delayed. So I think that this like pandemonium will continue for way more than two blocks actually. Also like important part is you can only like let's say you have USDC on proof of work, you can only sell your USDC. So if you had let's say 100 million USDC and you want to dump it into proof of work Ethereum, okay, that's all you can do. And but you cannot sell somebody else's USDC. And they can still do it a bit later, for example, for like really big uh, MM pools, which still might have opportunity like this uh, later on. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And, you know, maybe to add on to that, you know, I think that, you know, you're already starting to see some of this being reflected. Well, well you know, on the sort of like foreign lending pools uh, where, you know, Ave Compound, uh, Euler, they're all coming out with different statements about what they're going to do. They're all going to treat things a little bit differently. Now, some of it is just that people want the um, fork token. Uh, that's why they're borrowing ETH and, you know, ETH uh, borrow rates are going high. But I think also some of it is that people want to pre-collateralize their DeFi debt in a lot of these stable coins, which cannot be duplicated uh, across two chains, right? So like a lot of people are already kind of setting up for this kind of stuff. Um, I would also say that there are some relative value trades. So like, let's say that there's like the first period where everybody just like dumps everything for ETH POW on the ETH POW chain. But then like maybe later, once everything has already kind of been dumped to all these ERC-20s have been dumped to nearly zero, now like maybe there's some kind of interesting plays that you can do between the ERC-20s, right? Like for example, if I asked you, do you think that CRV-1 or UNI-1, or like let's say CRV-POW or UNI-POW has more value? At some point, like both are dumped so low that both are kind of like, you know, free options, right? Or very, very cheap options. But even then between them, you know, you can make certain arguments about why one, uh, I, I won't say what, what I think there, but <clears throat> why one might be worth more than the other, right? So like once all like the eighth POW has been taken out uh, of the system, people are just kind of waiting for the exchanges to open up deposits to go and sell it. You know, and I guess some people would hold on to it just to be fair. Then, you know, what's left to do on chain, maybe there's like a second period after the initial pandemonium which is like a reshuffling of the relative values of all of these coins. I think I did a poll and most people thought that as a ratio of the PAL version to the POS version, they thought that SHIB would, would, would be worth the most, right? Compared to some of these other coins. Uh, you know, I have, I have some differences of opinion there, uh, but you know, uh, it's possible. I mean, there, I mean, it's, at, at least with SHIB, it's just, you know, not a very fancy token. There's not a lot of knock-on effects with with DeFi, um, so it's possible maybe they're right about that, right? But at least you know it gives us some things uh, to play around with while you know after the initial wave of of ETH POW, uh, everything being traded into ETH POW on the on the on the uh, on the POW chain. 
This is interesting because I'm just realizing that I had never thought about what kind of token SHIB was, but I'm just realizing it's an ERC-20. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so we've been referring to this throughout, but let's just dive into this a little bit further. What have you been seeing, uh, people do or are doing in advance to, you know, either obtain this airdrop or trade it in some ways, you know, some of the things we've been talking about have been the RC twenties. I've seen people talking about, you know, moving money from layer twos, moving them from centralized exchanges. You know, you were talking about the futures and how that those have traded. What are some of the kind of bigger signals that you've seen in terms of like how the market is thinking about this fork? So I think on, on maybe just answer it in two different ways. The first thing is about whether or not the people uh, preparing for this stuff have a lot of risk appetite or not, right? So if you don't have much risk appetite, probably the safest thing to do just to dodge as much chaos as possible is to you know pull all of your assets from the L2s, pull all of your assets out of DeFi uh, whether that's in an AMM uh, or in a lending pool, and kind of like not have to deal with it, right? That would be the, the safest thing to do. Um, now, uh, I, th- I, I do imagine that that will happen at least to some degree in that on-chain liquidity will get um, a bit more shallow. And if that does happen, then there's also all sorts of uh, knock-on effects, right? It means that you know, as, as liquidity gets thinner, then liquidations become more likely. And as long as there is enough vol. Uh, just naturally induced by the merge, right? So it doesn't even have to do with ETHPOW forking, but just from you know Ethereum itself, uh, you know on the on the proof of stake side, if the merge is successful or it's a failure, there could still be a lot of all, right? Because even on success, some people say, oh, this is a sell the news event. Some people say, oh, you know now more money is going to pile in, right? So there's going to be a lot of disagreement in the market, and I think vol itself will be a bit on the higher side, and this can just cause you know normal day to day vol. You know, maybe won't cause that much in liquidations, you know, because it's 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 less and liquidity is bigger and thicker there. But now with liquidity shallowing out and vault uh, increasing, you know, we can see all sorts of things. We can see all sorts of assets trade really far away from kind of short term fair value. That's I think something to to keep in mind. Yeah. And the and the curious thing is, you also have the whole macro on top of it, which is still. Pretty big thing in crypto. So to, to me, the most challenging bit was like it's close to impossible to separate the price of Ethereum as it moves on the match news from well all the macro stuff that's happening outside. And so, I mean, Ethereum can go up fifty percent or can go down fifty percent for all kinds of reasons post merge. And uh, so from that perspective, I think yeah, people will get liquidated anyway. <laughs> it's it's kind of like yeah, it's it's already their destiny because yeah, the volatility will be really massive uh, either way, and maybe it will all cancel out and it will stay stay like this. Maybe it will go up. Maybe it will go down. I don't know. But it's it's going to be very volatile in general. Yeah, and maybe just to also add to that too. You know, some of the other things that I've heard people doing in, in preparation for the merge. And I don't, I don't want to say exactly what we're doing, but some of the things that I've heard, um, you know, it's like uh, some people think that it makes a lot of sense to borrow up as much ETH as possible and, you know, collateralize it with stable coins just for kind of like this uh, fork value. Um, and, but other people are saying, well, maybe doing the opposite is better where I'm just lending ETH because, you know, the borrow rates are so high. I'm getting compensated uh, a lot uh, just by lending people who want to make this play uh, my ETH, right? And then, then it, it goes into like how, how are compound and Ave going to handle it? Ave is saying that, um, you know, they're just maybe going to 
pause borrowing lending. Compound is saying, why don't we make the maximum interest rate? I, maybe I got them confused, but uh, but you know, one of them is saying maybe make the maximum interest rate, you know, a thousand percent annualized, uh, you know, instead of capping at like a hundred percent, for example, right? And then Euler Finance is saying uh, maybe the best course of action is just to do nothing and let things play out. Really, really hard to say. You know, at least now it does seem like the East Pow team is saying that they are not going to freeze um, uh, things on on the DeFi side on their chain. Uh, which I actually, I actually think that's actually a pretty good idea because even though they have to go through all of this like crazy pandemonium and a lot of like liquidations, like it's better to kind of like rip the bandaid off, right? Because like you still have the same problem even if you freeze things. Because like, what are you going to do? You're just going to put into withdrawal only mode like forever, or at some point you're going to like reactivate it. I mean, you're just kind of postponing the problem. I think it's better just to like flush everything out um, as quickly as possible. And if they they do think that there is some hope that uh, it works out in the long run, they might as well just, you know, get beyond this chapter first. All right. And the miners have to take maybe some losses early on uh, just to mine it. Uh, but, you know, at least you can kind of like get over the, the hump um, beforehand. But they, I mean, they, they wouldn't take any losses, right? Because, well, it's actually in, the, in their favor to allow this because then people will actually do stuff on proof of work chain. Like if you freeze everything, like what are people going to do anyway? Where is it going to make their fees? But now they, they suddenly have people like competing for those uh, for those executions, paying a lot of like that, that's that's how they can actually make a lot of ease proof of work for themselves and well increase this uh, well war chest for later on. So uh, to me, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely possible. Um, yeah, I think what, what I meant by taking losses is that I imagine that maybe some of them were also maybe financing the development. Of ETHPOW, uh, you know, maybe they're they're like taking losses in the sense that they actually do believe that their chain will be worth maybe not that much, but like more than what the market is showing at two percent right now, right? So for them, it's like they would they maybe mine at a loss given the current price, and then try and hold it to like maybe four percent or six percent or something like that, right? But I agree. I mean, I think in some ways it is more beneficial to them in that there's a lot of activity. I think it's a bit confounded. I don't think it's obvious whether or not. They have to t- they have to do a little bit of like loss leading um, or whether it's still just like overall net positive because like even if they freeze it eventually when they unfreeze it they still get that activity later right so it's like probably it's worth more now than than later but it also depends on their own expectations of of how they're going to do right and how are you seeing DeFi users trying to play this like I don't know if you've been watching any of those movements, but do you see that there's certain movements in DeFi where it looks like those people are trying to get the the tokens or, or dump them or whatever on the uh, ETHPOW chain when that emerges? Well, I mean, I think until it until the fork, it's hard to say what people will do because they can't really do it right now. The only thing that they can do right now is split their ETH and pre-sell um, ETHPOW. But for all the on-chain stuff and all the tokens, you know, we just kind of have to wait and see, uh, I figure. Okay, but you're not seeing any movements like, for instance, liquidity pools drying up or just, yeah, a lot more being created or anything like that that would indicate there are certain ways people are trying to play that. What I would say is um, we've noticed some things. I don't want to say exactly. We're, we're, we're so close to the merge. Um, maybe we can... I'm happy to always come back on later after the fact <laughs> to, to talk about things. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
Well, you know, this actually leads me to another question that I had for you, which was that, as we mentioned earlier, for the Dow Hard Fork, it was just totally different. Like the community was totally blindsided by the Ethereum Classic chain. And the fact that now you have been so open about this, like you even mentioned that you feel that now the community seems very well prepared for this. But I was just wondering, why were you so open about it? Because didn't that sort of cut into any potential profit you might have made from doing these trades in a more kind of like stealth way? Yeah. So I want to say that there are a lot of trades that I never talked about that we did make, one involving Litecoin, actually using that as a hedge. Uh, But that's a a separate thing. But And there's also, I think, a lot of more sort of mechanical plays um, that I I didn't really talk about. Um, The reason that I I did talk about a couple plays, right? So like two are kind of the same, which is like the STETH basis uh, widening, the spread widening, and then the the backwardated um, futures basis. That was because like, I think overall, I thought that the, the risks of the merge were greater than zero. Meaning that like initially when I was first talking about it, it seemed like nobody even believed that there would be an ETH pal, right? And then now I think more of the consensus has shifted to there will be, eventually it'll be worth zero, but there will be at least um, some ETH pal and at least it'll have some uh, short-term value, right? So I think, you know, part of it is just um, doing a little bit of sort of like, raising the alarm that it's a bit alarming that nobody is even talking about this. Uh, and the second thing is that I don't think that we as a firm could take up all of the value there on that trade, right? There's a lot smaller trades where it's sort of like, I need to be a little bit more careful about because there's not that much money to be made anyway, right? So it's not really great to, to share. I think for this one, I don't think we could have absorbed everything ourselves. So it, w- it wasn't very costly for us to to talk about it so that's like the first class and then the second one was about just shorting eth uh, against bitcoin uh and basically we shorted it for about two weeks or so and that was just because you know you know we thought that eth really just kind of were uh, they were uh, you know over their skis a little bit in terms of just how bullish they were about about eth i later thought that maybe doge would have been a better hedge than bitcoin because i also have some concerns about you know the gox coins being released I mean, it, it really is just a, a bad time for, for Bitcoin, right? Like on one hand, the government wants to regulate, uh, you know, from in an ESG way, um, you know, this, uh, the mining stuff. And then like ETH is going through this uh, merge narrative. And then, you know, on top of that, the Cox coins are getting released, right? So like idiosyncratically, like normally we like using Bitcoin as a beta hedge to the crypto space. But I think this time around, like, you know, maybe Litecoin would have been better or Dogecoin would have been better, you know, even though there, there's all sorts of like idiosyncratic behavior there too. So, you know, for that trade, um, we also closed it out after two weeks. And I also thought that that was something that we, you know, we couldn't take all of the alpha ourselves. Um, and I thought, you know, it was relevant to also uh, say that it's it's not just about, um, it's not just about ETHPOW, right? Like the fact that ETHPOW will exist, I thought was not being properly priced in by the market. People should know. But also, I think the fact that everybody's super bullish into the merge, I thought was also a little bit scary. And I think it's a lot healthier now, which is why I actually closed out the position. It's because at least people are talking about that it is possible that the merge is not ultra bullish for either, right? And I think really, I just wanted that kind of concession, right? It could still be, but I think like if all of the chatter on Twitter and the entire narrative is like 99% of people are talking about how this is just going to be uh, up only, that is very dangerous. And it's a little bit reminiscent in flavor to the narrative surrounding Luna. And I don't want to make it sound like 
ETH is anything close to Luna. I mean, Luna is like infinitely worse, right? But at least this kind of like group think and consensus, like this like monoculture of up only feels very, very dangerous. And, you know, and then obviously ETH is less reflexive and less bad than Luna overall. But still, it's just, it had a similar flavor. And I thought that was dangerous. Uh, yeah, that, I, a lot of insight there, um, which, you know, I agree. And that's why I run the kind of show that isn't just pro uh, any particular coin in the space. But anyway, okay, so there's a lot still that I feel like I was trying to ask you guys and we didn't get to unpack. We're going to unpack that. Also talk about things like replay protection or replay attacks and then go into ETH itself because that is the major asset that will be affected by the merge. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Is your Web3 experience hindered by inadequate crypto wallets and browser extensions? Ava Labs has created Core, a free, non-custodial browser extension engineered for Avalanche users to have a more seamless and secure Web3 experience. The best-in-class Avalanche Bridge now offers native support for the Bitcoin network. Put your Bitcoin to work in the robust DeFi ecosystem by bridging BTC to Avalanche today. With Core, you can also easily swap assets, display your NFTs in style, store your assets in a ledger-enabled wallet, and put real dollars into your crypto wallet in just a few clicks. Core is everything you need for a simple, secure, and convenient Web3 experience. Download the free Core browser extension from Google Chrome's App Store today. Curious about the world of crypto and the future of the next internet? Then check out Web3 with A16Z, the chart-topping technology podcast from the minds at Andreessen Horowitz, the go-to destination for discussions on tech as it changes our world. Whether you're a crypto-curious person looking for signal versus noise in the day's headlines, or a C-suite decision-maker seeking to understand Web3 as part of your business strategy, Web3 with A16Z is the podcast for you. Tune in each week for leading insights from the top scientists and makers in the space through carefully curated conversations with acclaimed podcast host Sonal Choksi, former showrunner and longtime host of the A16Z podcast, along with frequent guest appearances and hosting by Chris Dixon. Listen to Web3 with A16Z today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back to my conversation with Kevin and Evgeny. So we've referred to these things a few times now, but I just want to um, make sure we explain this to people. So Kevin, you mentioned the Steeth price widening, I, I guess, you know, in relation to ETH. Can you just talk about what you saw there and why that what what that indicates about how people are thinking about the merge? Um, yeah, so I think I think that spread's actually come in a little bit. Uh, we we still do have that position on, but the original idea on why it would widen is that like what's the difference between uh, STETH and ETH, right? Like one is that STETH gets some kind of like staking yield. Two, it's more illiquid, and then three, it's um, uh, not going to get the uh, proof of work fork, right? So those are like the three main differences, right? Now on the proof of work side, 
that's just whatever the value of the proof of work chain is, right? Which is the market is saying like 1.8% or you know whatever it is today, I haven't looked. And then on the sort of yield versus illiquidity side, you know, I was pricing that roughly at like 2%. So I think like STE should be like the sum of 2% and whatever the ETH fork, ETH POW fork is worth, right? And that was kind of my baseline, like mental model of what the fair value of STE is. Evgeny, do you want to talk about what you were seeing with the futures market and what that indicated about how people were thinking about trading the merge? I mean, ultimately, uh, just just like Kevin said, it's it's all the the markets are pretty efficient. Like staked ease discount reflected the futures markets and what we see as like interest on other. It's also highly correlated to that. We've even seen people smashing the functional perpetuals, even though. It, doesn't make as much sense because like it obviously can change significantly more uh, and will uh, much closer to the merge. So like it's it's just stuff that happens in a trading world that must happen. So it's not uh, esoteric by any means. It just it just must happen. Like I think with stake Ethereum, like there was a bit of effect on top of it that like there are other stake products and there is often like a relative value play. Buying some of them, some another of them, like Coinbase just released their stake product as well. So there are there are a lot, quite a lot of plays that can be done with it. And I think also one thing that I wanted to touch upon is like this idea. I find like really interesting this idea that okay, let's say it's two percent. Let's say let's say proof of work Ethereum is two percent. Um, I don't think it's such a big deal to, to, to a degree, primarily because I don't think there is a bit in all this. Like, okay, there is a bit of a bit, I don't know, maybe Kevin will be like 0.5%. Wintermute will be like 0.25% because why not? Like some other people will be as well. But ultimately, all of us are doing it for like really short term. Like, and at some point it will, like if it goes to 10%, that's that's where you will see Ethereum Foundation selling. That's where you will see a lot of exchanges selling. That's where you will see a lot of market makers selling. So currently, there is this massive invisible offer, which will not disappear primarily because it does, just doesn't make sense for most people to sell two percent. It's like it's it's just not worth it. It's a, it's it's almost a free option you get. Okay, it's, it costs you two percent, but the upside is is there, so it just makes sense to wait it out. And it's especially true for for all this like. CRV1 or Uni1 tokens, which are also like, I don't know, Kevin asked me the last day, like, yeah, can I show him an offer? Like, it doesn't really make sense for us to sell them at 10 basis points or five basis points because, okay, if, if they can go to 1% of Uni for, because some people think they have value for whatever reason, that, that's the money we can potentially make. And so it really doesn't make sense to sell your, so yeah, sell your assets like basis point on the dollar. It just makes sense to wait, but it also creates this fake illusion of something having value, which it actually doesn't. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think I mostly agree with what Evgeny said, but I would have a different opinion about what constitutes something having value. You know, as we've seen just in the past two days, Luna Classic pumped like crazy. I would certainly say that this chain has virtually no value. You know, overnight it kind of just pumped like a hundred percent, and now Luna uh, two basically Luna itself is pumping. That also doesn't have too much, right? So, and then you know, just in in the history of crypto, how much 
value is there in a lot of these coins, right? Um, I think a lot of it is just kind of like belief in a thing, like a, in a GameStop kind of way, right? Um, and I think a lot of it is also pulling very speculative future worlds to the present, right? Like it's sort of like, let's say almost all the value of ETH POW is now maybe contingent on ETH POS completely and utterly failing and then them having a really strong narrative uh, or maybe not even that strong, but much stronger than now kind of narrative, right? Like if the chance of ETH POS completely failing is like, let's say, and I'm talking about like catastrophic problems, not like minor bugs, and they'll probably have minor bugs. It'll all be fine, right? But like really just like, it just doesn't work. They have to roll back the chain or there's like really critical consensus failures or some kind of double spin or the network itself uh, completely forks and requires meet space coordination uh, to resolve properly. Maybe that's like around like, let's say three to 5%. And then like, if that happens, then let's say the narrative for ETH POW improves like, let's say 5X, right? So like, that's a road for them to get to some kind of meaningful percent, at least in the medium term. Because, you know, when all is said and done, and after ETH POW has been completely hollowed out, it's basically like how ETH is today, right? And I think that they can make that as a much more convincing argument if the narrative all of a sudden shifts to that the Ethereum Foundation for eight years have been building this thing. And in the end, when they delivered, it didn't work, right? Like if the narrative really, and because like when people get pissed on Twitter, they get really pissed. And when the, when the mob gets awoken, they break out the torches. So, you know, we, we've seen former sort of like leaders of projects have their entire community turn on them and kind of get uh, burned at the stake and crucified. I would not put it past that to happen in ETH if something really, really bad happened, right? Not, not some kind of minor uh, problems. So I do see that uh, first that this is kind of a massive call option on possibly something like that happening. And then the second is that if we actually look at what it is, it's basically unforked ETH and how it works today, but where a lot of stuff has to get dumped and liquidated and hollowed out. Um, so kind of like, like what you were saying, Evgeny, like it's like, <laughs> it's like starting a new chain, but there's no, there's no like kind of like foundation treasury and you have, you have to deal with a lot of pain in, in the short term. Uh, but it's kind of like a vampire attack because you put the coins into the hands of the people who were using the product in exactly the types of ways um, that they were using it before. And they get exactly the kind of ERC twenties that they had before. Right. So it's almost, and I don't even think it's particularly bad for the Ethereum foundation in that it's almost kind of like an insurance policy, right. In case like things are catastrophic, then there is something there. Now, obviously I think they would just roll back the chain. Like I'm not actually particularly worried about, let's say like STE in the long run, right. There could be some like liquidations in the short run because like we've already seen social consensus work with, in that like Keith kind of beat out ETC, right? Like ideological purity didn't matter that much. Social consensus mattered more. Devs mattered more, right? So like their, their strongest and most true believers are the ones that have STE. They're not going to let those guys um, take losses on their bags, right? If something that's like really bad happens, right? And they're going to bail them out, right? And I think at this point, it's a lot less bad than I think the, the classic days because like the first kind of change to code is like not law is like much more boolean i think than like the second one because it's already done been done in the past right 
And I think it, it makes sense for them to do that. If I was them, I would definitely do that, right? So, you know, I think there's there's like a lot of these kinds of considerations. I have to say, I think the main way that I uh, would differ from you on that is the percentage at which you think there will be a spectacular failure. So we'll see what happens. Um, you know, they've had so many successful tests, so and they have multiple clients, so we'll see. But one thing I did want to ask you before we get into things around just, um, you know, ETH itself. Um, so we talked about how there might be replay attacks. Can you just talk a little bit about, so if, if there are people out there who, you know, are thinking about trading this, what are you seeing that they're maybe doing to either protect themselves? Because, you know, at this moment, it looks quite likely that there will be, uh, given that this ETH POW team hasn't really done the necessary technical work to, to, uh, split the chains. So are you seeing people you know, protect themselves in one way or another, or, you know, or how are you guys doing it? Well, just like with uh, with a DAO, DAO of work, it's like the main the main um, players who can be affected by the law, the exchanges, and I think they are prepared for it. Well, all the big, all like tier one, tier two ones, I would say, are definitely prepared for it, and they will simply not gonna. Well, they be very careful with their withdrawal functions, basically, uh, simply because of that. But another one, and it's a really interesting one uh, aspect of replay attacks that we looked on our side is it's basically related to basically all this pandemonium that will happen on proof of work chain. And basically, what can potentially happen is, let's say I have I don't know 100 million USDC, I sell it all onto East proof of work and go and sell it on uh, Poloniex later on. Great, I made uh, maybe, maybe I'll make like a few few hundred k. Who knows? Um, but what happens if the chain ID is the same and replace attacks are possible is somebody can, like, if I have the same state on proof of stake chain, somebody can replace that and screw me over big time because I will suddenly sell 100 million of real USDC against Ethereum proof of stake. And then suddenly I'm doing like a really bad trade potentially for me because I'm doing, yeah, I'm doing something really big that will potentially move the price. And that's that. That can be scary. Can I just ask you? I don't understand your example because, like, USD Circle or USDC already came out and said that they're not going to support the ETH proof of work chain because, obviously, since it's backed by real assets, like you can't just magically suddenly double all those. So, did you were you just making that up as an example, or I, I didn't understand how this could be an example? No, it's, it's more like so. If if I do this transaction of proof of work, trying to basically get this free uh, Ethereum proof of work from my valueless USDC. This transaction will have like transaction hash and like everything. So somebody can use the same transaction and replay it on proof of stake chain and execute exactly the same transaction. You see? Right. Because, yeah, because there's no replay protection. Oh, I get what you're saying. And uh, that basically, so... Profiting from it is kind of more difficult, but you can make, you can screw a lot of people potentially. And let's say, I don't know, let's say I sell 100 million of uh, Uniswap, for example, into proof of work. That will move Uniswap price a lot. And you can position yourself on the other side, buying this Uniswap really cheap on proof of stake, for example. So that, that can be like one fun thing to do. And it can be one fun thing that people can, on one hand, try to profit from. Or if they're like really, really malicious, just trying to, I know, bankrupt uh, like big trading companies, for example. So for us, it was one of those like, what can 
go really, really, really wrong if, 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 if this stuff happens. And you can protect yourself against it, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a quite a fun one. How, how, um, are you protecting yourself against it? Uh, well, it's, uh, the most easy way to protect yourself is not to do this transaction on proof of work chain in the first place. That's probably the easiest. Well, that's just because then there is nothing to replay. Um, other ways is because it's a state, right? So the state should be the same. So basically, if you, during the first block, you move all your USDC from one wallet to another, and then during the second block, you sell this USDC on proof of work chain, nobody can replay it because you don't have any USDC on proof of stake anymore. So that's like another way you can do it and protect yourself. And would would this apply also to NFTs? Uh, it can apply to anything, really. Yeah. Yeah, because like OpenSea said, they wouldn't support the ETH, ETH proof of work chain. <laughs> Just imagine there might be some people who, uh, in the NFT world, they may not know what a replay uh, attack is. Um, hopefully, they'll they'll figure it out and and. Yeah, not not do anything that would cause them problems. Yeah, and maybe just to also add to that, um, there's a way of splitting your coins pre-fork too. Like there's certain contracts out there that they haven't been audited. You know, I, I, I'm not vouching that they work or not, uh, but basically they figure out a way that on-chain you can detect which chain you're on and for each side of the two split coins to be only valid on. And, and it's basically a, a contract that allows you to split your split your coins up beforehand. Okay. Yeah. And I just want to make clear, nothing we're saying in the episode is advice for anyone, financial or trading investment advice for anyone. Um, okay. So we've been talking so much about the potential trading of the proof of work fork. And meanwhile, ETH really is the asset that will probably be most affected by this. Um, so let's you know zoom out and let's talk just generally about what's going to be happening here. You know, Kevin, you have actually talked about how you know you are long ETH, you um you know believe in ETH. Uh, I think that's why a lot of people were, you know, not really happy with your comments. But why don't we just sort of talk generally about like, you know, what kind of price action do you see around the merge? What, you know, do you think will happen in terms of potential issues around selling the news? Um, and then long term, you know, where do you think the price of ETH will go because of this news event, assuming it's successful? Yeah. So I think uh, it it depends on couple of things. And, and I just want to clarify, yeah, I, so I do hold a little bit of ETH myself that's just been uh, there for a long time. Um, but that being said, there have been periods that as a firm, we have both been long ETH and we've also been short ETH and also most of the time just flat ETH. So, you know, I just wanted to clarify that. Overall, if the merge is uh, successful, I think that initially probably um, just from the hype and just from the celebration, you know, probably a little bit more money is going to pile in. But I think right now, anybody who really likes ETH is already kind of in ETH. I find there, there to be very few people kind of like on the sidelines that are kind of like neutral about this and want to see how it plays out and then uh, to go along. I think for the most part, people, even on the fence, have mostly bought into the narrative. Uh, and then there's like a set of detractors who will just never buy this thing no matter what happens. So I think really, you know, the, kind, the lines are kind of drawn um, already there. And uh, I don't really see the price getting bought up to really crazy heights. Now, there are some counter arguments to this. Like, for example, that... Uh, you know, uh, the inflation supply issuance is going to get reduced by a lot, uh, you know, 99%, uh, 90%, um, you know, and, you know, that will help things on the supply kind of overhang side. But, you know, I think a lot of price action is mostly driven by demand anyway. 
So really the question is like, who are going to be the new buyers? We know that there's a lot of people who are, who are like, kind of like, it depends on the, like the demographic of like true believers and who can be converted to be a true believer after the merge is successful versus how much mercenary capital was piling into the long merge trade to begin with, who will then look to exit for new opportunities in whatever the new narrative is. So if the former is greater, then the price should go up. If the latter is greater, then the price should go down. That would be what my guess is, um, you know, on whether this is a sell the news event or not. Evgeny, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's in general quite interesting that we are both here because our firms are both trading, but like we're kind of doing very different things in a way. Because yeah, if you if you listen to Kevin, like it's I don't know, long Ethereum, short Dogecoin, like all those all those kind of plays. While for us, it's much more on the automation side, just just making sure that we are that we can just provide markets continuously throughout the day. Like we, we typically don't hold long-term views on things. We do hold some tokens as part of, some of our venture portfolio. We do hold some tokens like Ethereum and Bitcoin as part of our treasury, effectively. It's not it's not uh, something that that can ever make us go bankrupt or even like jeopardize our operations, but it's, it's something we felt was the right thing to do. Also, it didn't really work out last uh, nine months or so. But but we are we are okay. But I think for us the interesting thing is just how to react to different things as they happen. So we are much more preparing. We are not really positioning ourselves to go long ease or short ease or doing things like this. But we are thinking, okay, like how we, how us and our algorithms will react to certain things. And for example, like one thing that we've been debating internally is: Are we going to be looking at proof of work Ethereum price? And what we kind of decided is. Not really, because like it's well. First of all, like no nobody can say what Ethereum theoretical price is at any moment because there's just so many variables. But like if proof of work goes to ten percent of ease, it's not going to be a like a selling signal for us for Ethereum because we we do see proof of work as much more of a meme coin than anything else at this stage. And I mean. Like the, the trades that we would be doing with it is would be looking at it trading against Ethereum Classic, for example, or maybe against some other some other chains. But in terms of positioning, it would be yeah, wait and see. But position ourselves for yeah, for yeah, massive volatility basically for the first few months, and just like I mentioned, focus on how the MEV game will change, provided that the merge happens successfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know maybe I could just add something to that you know i think a lot of what i've been talking about recently has been more about like sort of these long short trades uh, mostly hedged some directional uh sort of like mid-frequency you know maybe fundamental type plays um that's actually mostly not what we do actually we we actually also do quite a bit of algo trading and not to the extent uh, that that wintermute does i mean i know that wintermute um is uh you know one of the big uh, behemoths in algo trading uh, across you know DeFi and CeFi, I think you guys have like two of the top thirty accounts on FTX in uh, in volume. Um, for us, you know, we're uh, much smaller. We're at maybe about top eighty right now on FTX. But you know, we also do have a lot of stuff where you know we're also doing market making. We're also doing um, a little bit of HFT trading. But you know that I, I, f- I figure that's not going to be as interesting for you know the topic at hand. So I wanted to sort of just talk about um, things maybe that are more relevant. Um, to the viewers and, you know, things that they, they might be, you know, they might want to uh, think about and not financial advice, but maybe some things that might impact them um, and that they, they would think about. But I'm also happy to also talk about like, you know, order book dynamics and like, 
you know, cue positions and tick sizes and that sort of thing too. Um, we're going to take it in a different direction because we're, we're sort of running out of time. And I did want to ask, um, you know, there's, we kind of talked about the narrative around Bitcoin and how, um, there's a lot of news that, you know, has been challenging for Bitcoin recently. Um, but in addition, ETH's issuance will go way down after the merge. It may even become deflationary. So how do you think this affects the narrative around Bitcoin, which traditionally has been thought of as digital gold? It has this digital scarcity. Um, and so if ETH is even more deflationary, you know, how does that affect Bitcoin? Yeah, you know, I think um, I wanted to say, that I wanted to draw the Luna classic example but i'm not sure what side this supports right so like on one hand <laughs> luna c basically is introducing an on-chain transaction tax right making it actually deflationary and i made the joke on twitter that oh luna c must now be ultrasound money uh well you know obviously the point that i was trying to make is that uh, you know, just because something's deflationary doesn't make it sound right. Like if you tack on like a 1.5% transaction tax on lunacy, I mean, does it really make it that much better? I mean, this thing, this thing is kind of garbage, right? Um, but that being said, what the market said is that it really liked it. And actually, uh, lunacy like just pumped on that news, right? Um, I don't know how much of that is sustaining. I think it's, you know, fallen off a bit since then, but the market really liked that news. The idea of just like imposing a 1.5% transaction tax on chain, Right. So like on one hand, I do feel like, you know, fundamentally, this makes no sense. You can't just move around some numbers just because something is deflationary doesn't mean that, uh, especially something that, that is so um, in crypto in general, that is so demand driven doesn't just make it, you know, pump in price. But on the other hand, the market is actually saying, well, maybe just this cosmetic change is actually really good for the price. So I actually have very mixed feelings about it. I think before the whole lunacy pump, I was thinking, well, you know, I think, you know, maybe it goes up a little bit, you know, uh, because of the the supply effect, uh, but maybe not too much. But now I'm actually, you know, maybe I'm kind of revising my opinion now, just given what's happening with Luna C and Luna. Uh, you know, really hard to say. I'm 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 constantly kind of reevaluating what the market is telling me, whether I think that that's sensible or not. I mean, doesn't matter as much. You know, I think it's more about what does the market believe, and I need to figure out how how it's thinking. Right. But so, but how do you think this will affect Bitcoin? Do you think that ETH will, you know, the price will be boosted and at, to the detriment of Bitcoin or? I think at this point, there's not that many new people to be won over from the Bitcoin camp to the ETH camp. Like the, the camps are basically set. I don't think there's many people on the fence and things have already gotten very polarized. So I don't think that it's to the detriment of Bitcoin per se in the short term. In the long term, it could be. Um, I think just as a competitor to Bitcoin. But, but I would stay, still say that right now, the thing that probably impacts Bitcoin the most is its own idiosyncratic uh, events, right? So things like the Gox coin overhang, right? Like if, if that wasn't there, then like that, I think that's a much more bigger primary effect than what's going on with Ethereum. But I do think in the long term, uh, especially in like maybe like a bull market or a couple cycles down the line, they're going to have to battle, right? Like w once like everybody has adopted crypto, then along the borders, there's a lot of like, there's a lot more fighting for territory, right? Uh, and this is this is sort of why bear markets are very PVP, because everybody sees the, the pie shrinking, and there's no way to get a bigger pie. So everybody tries to take everybody else's pie, right? But in a, in, a, in, a, in a bull market, that's not the case. The pie itself is growing. Generally, there's like less infighting, everything grows. But eventually, it grows to a point, right, in, in, in the success case of crypto, that there's like full adoption, uh, you know, worldwide adoption. And at that point, finally, the lines are drawn. 
and then uh, there has to be uh, a lot of like this kind of competition. Uh, so that's kind of how I see things in, in the different timeframes. Evgeny, what about you? What do you think about how this affects Bitcoin? Mm, also very, very similar. I don't see people switching from Bitcoin to Ethereum. It's more like the narrative can change so much that the future people will more likely buy Ethereum than Bitcoin. So that's, it's more about that. It's, it's, it's about all the new people that will eventually buy one another because you cannot buy both. You, can get, you need to make a choice. Or maybe they will buy Solana or maybe they buy something else that is not issued yet. So it's, it's all about this. I don't, but I, I don't think Ethereum will replace Bitcoin like completely. Uh, I think like they're still playing very, very difficult, very, very different use cases because Bitcoin is all about the most basic blockchain algorithms there is, which works, which is, well, arguably the most decentralized uh, cryptocurrency out there compared to pretty much everything else. And it works, like, right? Like, so many external shocks, like, I don't know, banning Bitcoin mining in one country or another, like, all kinds of things. It still, it still works. People are still buying it. And yes, we can have Mongox. We can have, I don't know, Sailor being liquidated because of that. There can be a lot of fun events happening. But ultimately, I think it has a brand. Uh, like, it, it, it is the first cryptocurrency that was. And just because of that, I think it will, it will have, like, pretty consistent value. And as for Ethereum, it's just different because it's, yeah, this virtual machine. It has DeFi on it. It's, I, I don't, I don't really understand, like, well, I guess, I guess for me, for me personally, I don't understand why people think Ethereum can be such a great store of value. It's more like oil to me, I guess. However, cliche as the sound. So it's like oil to Bitcoin gold, I guess. I just want to say I completely agree with uh, Guinea's uh, sentiments there. Okay. Yeah. Arthur Hayes was saying similar things when I interviewed him recently. And last question, I wanted to ask about this news that the White House recently said they're concerned about the environmental impact of proof of work mining. And I wondered again, how you thought this could affect that kind of, I I don't want to call it a competition because I agree with you that Bitcoin and Ether are actually just different things with different purposes. But obviously, you know, as you said, people will come into this space, especially newbies, they're going to be kind of looking at them, maybe more just like as investments or whatever. And so I wondered how you felt that the, you know, change in the Ethereum consensus algorithm towards something that's more environmentally friendly would affect, again, the narratives um, between these two coins. Um, Yeah, so I think it really depends on how the ETH people want to play it and whether or not they're going to take this as an opportunity to try and take market share uh, from Bitcoin. Because I do think that the narrative on this favors them, uh, you know, pretty strongly. Uh, with, you know, obviously uh, proof of stake requiring a lot less energy, especially during a time where energy, you know, there's there's energy issues um, around the world. Um, and, you know, you can make a case that maybe that energy would be, quote unquote, better spent on, you know, heating homes and, and, and you know, growing food or whatever, or all these other things, right? So I think, you know, it's, I think the ball's in their court on what they want to do. Um, I don't particularly mind the moral argument, like if they were to say that, uh, you know, ESG is just better for the planet. It's it's good overall. I think I think I don't. What I don't particularly like is if they would try and I, I always consider a lot of the disputes within crypto to be like family affairs, right? Like for the most part, um, you know, we all disagree with each other, but at the end of the day, we're all like crypto heads together, right? And, you know, against the outside world, against like uh, fiat money, that sort of thing. Um, so you know, I think that overall, like. You know, I, I've, I've supported, uh, you know, tornado cash and the developments that are going on there. I, I don't think that 
Um, I think that whether or not ETH is a security, I don't think that the Bitcoiners should go down that road, right? And I also don't think that the Ethereum guy should go down the road of having trying to have state actors enforce against uh, proof of work. I think the best situation is just to have an open market, have everybody just um, fight on an equal playing field, and then you know may the best coin win. Um, I think you can make moral arguments. I don't even mind, you know, Ethereum guys um, doing that. I think it's just it's another thing to kind of have like an appeal to a great authority, uh, you know, with a monopoly on violence to try and enforce against your competition and to try and limit the scope of uh, of their competition. I think that that would be less healthy for the space in the long run. And I and I think that it's um, it's important that at a time like now that at least there is some level of camaraderie. Uh, within the, the the crypto space, which is also why I think tactically for the ETH guys, it's better for them to focus on the tech thesis and then subvert Bitcoin on the money thesis much later, rather than fighting Bitcoin on the money thesis while already having won the tech thesis, causing a lot of reaction from the Bitcoin maximalists to then go attack Ethereum. I think it's a lot better to have some kind of truce there, um, so that you know a greater war can be fought, and then you know later on can can deal with that. Uh, can deal with that issue. I mean, Ethereum can always make the argument that U.S. equities are in total worth more than gold, right? Than the market cap of gold. I think that is a perfectly fair argument to make. If they want to say they they want to have like U.S. equities plus, you know, the market capitalization of gold, I think that that is fair. But I don't think that that's tactically correct. Yeah. Interesting, Evgeny. Yeah. Look, I'm I'm, I'm pretty much hundred percent agree. Like. One thing I guess I want to say for the right, yeah, I mean, it's totally political what's going on. Like, and it's just part of continuation of this ESG narrative that has been there for quite some years now. I personally, I'm personally hoping for the record that this ESG narrative will wither and die because I think like the way it's implemented, the way it's affecting like how people invest their money in mid space, I think it's very stupid. Um, there are like way more smarter ways how you can affect the change on the well with this environment and everything. And yeah, banning Bitcoin is not 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 the way to approach it. Like it's banning Bitcoin is not is not going to make our planet greener. That's that's if you think about it properly, you understand that. So I think yeah, I, I fully agree that as crypto community, we should go get together and like just not use those kind of occasions to yeah, destroy our opponents. It's like very, very simple. Okay. Well, this has been a fascinating note to end this conversation on, given that I do think certain members of the Ethereum community would say that you are, um, you know, fomenting chaos for them. But anyway, um, before we go, where can people learn more about each of you and your work? Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter, um, at Galois underscore capital. Yeah, I'm on Twitter as well. It's my first name, last name, Yevgeny Gaivoy. Uh, and that's mostly why I'm writing stuff. I sometimes write articles, but it's not as frequent as I would like to. All right. Well, this has been so fun. We will see what happens next week. I'm I'm definitely excited for the merge. Thank you again. It's been a pleasure having you both on Unchained. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about The Merge, check out the show notes for this episode. Get exclusive access to even more of my content, including all the links in the weekly news recap through Bulletin. Visit laurashin.bulletin.com slash subscribe. 
Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Matt Pilchard, Juan Aranovich, Pamela Jimdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.